I turn now in our scriptures, or in the scriptures, to our scripture lesson for this morning, as we continue our study of the latter part of Genesis, through the life of Joseph, we come to Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 through 28, which finishes chapter 45. This again is the word of the Lord, as he inspired Moses to write here infallibly the record, the account of this history, the life of Joseph, and now also of his dealing with his brothers and his father, and here particularly of how Pharaoh is used by God to bless the house of Jacob. And so we'll read here the word of the living God, Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 through 28. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your animals and depart, Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave three hundred pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So they sent his brothers away, and they departed. And they said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt, and came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph has said to them, and when they saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. The last time we uh, read of uh, Joseph's revealing himself to his brothers, he told them to take this message to Jacob, to their father. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks, 
and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. So in today's passage, we read of Pharaoh's reaction uh, when he hears that Joseph has been reunited with his brothers. And in this passage, we continue to see God's gracious providence, his gracious provision, I should say, for his people. In this case, as he provides for them, even by means of a heathen king, We also see more typology. Uh, As we've seen previously, uh, Joseph is a type, he's a picture, a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. And in today's passage, we see more ways in which that is true. Namely, uh, number one, that Joseph's wisdom in planning for the welfare of his people reflects Christ. It's like Christ's wisdom in his care for his people. It prefigures that. Uh, Number two is... Pharaoh is kind to Joseph and his family for Joseph's sake. So God is kind to Christ's people for Christ's sake. The third thing we see is that Joseph is gracious in his provision for his brothers. He clothes them. He gives them riches. This is like Christ clothing his people in his righteousness and granting them glory and a share in his eternal reign. And then fourth, we see that Joseph, in his desire for peace among his brothers, prefigures Christ's desire for peace and unity in his church. Moses tells us now, the report was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. In God's providence, we see that Uh, Pharaoh essentially ratifies the very plans that Joseph had uh, that he's making here to provide for his family uh, before uh, before he knows anything directly of Joseph's intentions. He and his servants are pleased for this opportunity to show kindness to Joseph's family. Joseph is clearly popular in Egypt uh, among Pharaoh and his court for sure. And they're grateful for what Joseph has done to preserve them in this time of famine. And Pharaoh is glad of the opportunity to show this gratitude by extending hospitality to Joseph's family. When Pharaoh next speaks with Joseph, he tells him, Say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households, and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, bring your father and come. He intends to give Joseph's family the best of the land. No doubt, as I already mentioned, he feels much gratitude toward Joseph for what Joseph has already done. Not only has Joseph saved Egyptian civilization itself, He's made Egypt look wise in the eyes of the rest of the world for being so well prepared at this time of need. And so he promises the best of the land to Joseph's family. Once the brothers have gone to fetch their father, their wives, and their children, they'll come back and they'll receive, he says, the best of the land. Joseph has already stated his intention that the place where his family will settle will be the land of Goshen. And he will engineer it, as we'll see 
and the weeks to come, Lord willing, uh, so that Goshen is exactly where Pharaoh grants them the land to settle. We'll see more details of that later. But we already notice that Joseph is wise. Joseph has wisdom in planning for the welfare of his people. In terms of a place to raise cattle and sheep, Goshen certainly was the best of the land. It was in the northeast portion of the Nile Delta, as I mentioned before, between the eastern branches of the Nile and the eastern desert. It was well watered, at least watered enough, uh, possessed of rich enough soil to make it good grazing land, but it was not as well suited for uh, farming as other parts of the Nile Delta region would have been, or certainly the the, uh, Nile Valley to the south, uh, which, as I mentioned before, that's uh, the two divisions when you read in ancient uh, documents or from ancient inscriptions, the references that the pharaohs will say, I'm the king of two lands, or they'll refer to the two lands. They're referring to Upper Egypt, which is to the south. That's the higher elevation uh, portion, the, the valley of the Nile, and then the delta region in the north as it uh, empties into the Mediterranean Sea. That's lower Egypt. Pharaoh is not so specific as to where they're going to settle, but Joseph is already planning this. The Goshen will be the land that they settle in, perfect for grazing. You might think of it as something kind of like uh, the lands a bit farther west in Kansas from us, where it's not not so great for for, uh, growing crops, but wonderful grazing land. Uh, that's, uh, that's rather uh, what we see in the land of Goshen. But Pharaoh's not so specific, but Joseph will uh, make sure that this is where his family is allowed to settle. He's wisely planning this, just as Christ wisely plans for the good of his people. Pharaoh also provides carts for Joseph's brothers on which to carry their wives and their children and their father to bring them down to Egypt. Moreover, he says, also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So they only have to bring essential items that they'll need for the journey, and perhaps some things with which they would be completely unwilling to part. Otherwise, furnishings and other household items, they don't have to pack up every last thing before they move, because those things that they need will be provided when they settle in Goshen, or in Egypt, we should say, because Pharaoh's not being that specific yet. And these won't just be cast-offs, people's hand-me-downs and secondary things, but again, he says, the best of all the land of Egypt will be theirs. Pharaoh doesn't owe any of this to Joseph's family whatsoever, but he does it for Joseph's sake. Joseph has earned this treatment He admires and loves Joseph, and so he treats his people with this kind of love and admiration. Well, similarly, the Lord God owes you and me absolutely nothing except his everlasting contempt for our sins and rebellion against him. But for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Christ, he forgives the sins of his people. He receives to himself all who are Christ's family. And who did Christ say his family is? Those who trust in him and do the will of God. Matthew Henry writes, 
Here is the kindness of Pharaoh to Joseph and to his relations for his sake. He bade his brethren welcome, though it was a time of scarcity, and they were likely to be a charge, that is, a great expense, he's saying. They're likely to be a charge to him. So he, uh, Matthew Henry's pointing out that even though this is likely to cost Pharaoh a lot, he says, bring everybody, bring your whole family. And it's a pretty big family, as we'll see later. Henry goes on and says, Nay, because it pleased Pharaoh, it pleased his servants too. At least they pretended to be pleased because Pharaoh was. He engaged Joseph to send for his father down to Egypt and promised to furnish them with all conveniences, both for his removal thither and his settlement there. If the good of all the land of Egypt, as it was better stocked than any other land, thanks to Joseph under God, would suffice him, he was welcome to it all. It was all his own, even the fat of the land, so that they need not regard their stuff. He's uh, using a, probably the King James translation there. He says, what, what they had in Canaan he reckoned but stuff, but things, but goods. I translate it there. In comparison with what he had for them in Egypt. And therefore, if they should be constrained to leave some of that behind them, let them not be discontented. Egypt would afford them enough to make up the losses of their removal. Thus, those for whom Christ intends, shares in his heavenly glory, ought not to regard the stuff of this world. The best of its enjoyments are but stuff, but lumber. I'll stop there and note that a few hundred years ago when Matthew Henry was writing, uh, the word lumber just kind of means junk. If you ever read in, in old literature, like maybe an old Sherlock Holmes story or something, there's a, uh, somebody has a lumber room in their house. That just means a junk room, like a place where you put old bits of furniture and things that maybe you'll get to repairing later, or maybe we just don't want that out right now, and you know, maybe seasonal things that you change out. Uh, that goes in the lumber room. And so he's saying basically, but junk, the best of its enjoyments, the best of earth's enjoyments are but junk, Henry says. We cannot make sure of it while we are here, much less can we carry it away with us. Let us not therefore be solicitous about it, nor set our eyes or hearts upon it. There are better things reserved for us in that blessed land whither our Joseph has gone to repair a place. There he's pointing out Joseph prefiguring Christ. Christ is our Joseph in this scenario. So as Henry reminds us, the Lord promises us the riches of his heavenly kingdom. We must not therefore be overly concerned with the things that we may have or not have as we're here on earth. The things that we might lose for the sake of serving Christ in this world shouldn't be counted as a loss. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in Matthew 6.33 he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, For no other foundation can anyone lay 
than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So Paul's saying there, the things that we build on the foundation of our salvation in Christ Jesus in this world might be things, if they're for the kingdom of God, that carry on into the world to come, or they may be things we have to leave behind that we lose. It'll be like wood and straw that we've built on that foundation that's burned up. We'll be saved, but we won't be bringing anything with us, as it were. So Moses tells us, the sons of Israel did so. They heeded Pharaoh. They had no regard for their earthly stuff, as Matthew Henry puts it. As Pharaoh commanded, Joseph gave them carts and provisions for the journey, enough to provide for uh, the 11 brothers on their way home, and for them and their father and their wives and their children as they would return then to Egypt. Then we also see Joseph's gracious provision for his brothers. We've seen Pharaoh's gift. We also see Joseph's gracious provision for his brothers as he prefigures Christ in this way as well. Verse 22, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Notice first, he clothes them. Much as Christ clothes his people in his righteousness. Revelation 3, 5 says, he who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life this is Jesus speaking but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels Zechariah 3 verses 3 through 5 depicts the high priest Jeshua clothed in filthy garments unfit for God's presence but the angel of the Lord that's the pre-incarnate Christ actually comes and clothes him in perfect garments that are suitable for God's presence, the righteousness to stand in the Lord's presence. Joseph, prefiguring that, clothes his brothers, much as Christ clothes his people in his righteousness. And he gives gifts to each as he sees fit. Just as Ephesians 4, 7 says that Christ gives gifts to his people according to the measure of grace that he determines for them. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same level of gifts. But we all get gifts. Here Joseph clothes his brothers in new garments. Indeed, he gives garments to the same brothers. People have pointed out, many commentators have pointed this out. The same brothers who stripped him of the dignity of that garment that his father had given him. He now clothes with new garments. What grace. But to Benjamin, he chooses to give five changes of garments and 300 pieces of silver. Fifteen times, by the way, the amount for which Joseph was sold into slavery. Many have reckoned it's uh, worth about $2,000 in today's money, the amount of money that he gave. That depends on how you count it. If it's the value of the silver itself or the value of the inflated value of, of those coins. Moses shows how Joseph provided for the journey both directions. 
in verses 20, or verse 23, I should say. He sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. Also we read, so he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Some of you may have translations which say instead of something like become troubled, we'll say something along the lines of quarrel. The Hebrew word is literally tremble. And it has a double meaning in Hebrew. To tremble in fear, so that would become troubled, um, as it's translated here. Or to tremble in anger, so that's where we get the quarrel. I think here there is an element, perhaps, of both. That Joseph chose a word that, uh, that has both connotations. He doesn't want his brothers to fear that he will take revenge on them. Don't go to Canaan and then be afraid to come back because I'm not going to bring you to any harm. Nor does he want them to quarrel about which of them might be more at fault. It's obvious that if Jacob begins to question, well, how is it that Joseph is still alive, that he might learn what his sons had done to Joseph and how they have kept this from him for 22 years. Likewise, Christ wants us to have no fear about whether we can lose the things he has purchased for us. It's his perfect work. We can't lose them. He accomplished his perfect work so we can trust him and we can be at peace in that regard. And uh, we can and should also be at peace with one another. Christ desires that for his church. Moses tells us that the brothers returned home with the news that Joseph still lives. And Jacob is stunned. Literally, as we read this morning, we're told his heart stood still. Maybe you've experienced that, a shock in your life where it almost feels like your heart stops beating for a minute. Not actually literally a minute, but for a moment anyway. Where... You you feel so shocked that takes your breath away. And his disbelief is not from lack of faith, but just the sheer shock of such a sudden revelation of something he never thought could actually be true. He had reconciled himself to the fact, as far as he knew, that Joseph was gone forever. But as the reality of the fact that Joseph is not dead and that Joseph actually is is ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, is settling in here, he hears that all that Joseph has told them to say to their father and sees all the supplies that Joseph has sent, which proves, yes, indeed, he is a man of authority in Egypt. He says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. What joy Jacob must have experienced at the prospect of seeing a son that as far as he knew was dead. And he hasn't seen him in 22 years, as we'll see. Well, overarching this passage is the reality that God graciously provides for his people. In this case, he does so by means even of a heathen king, not not a man who is worshiping the Lord, But the Lord is governor of all of these events, much as he will do 
more than a thousand years later by Cyrus, who was not a worshiper of the Lord either. God protected and provided for Israel in, in Cyrus's day, liberated them from the Babylonian captivity. Here, God is protecting and providing for the fledgling nation of Israel by means of arguably the most powerful man on earth in that day. In Romans 13, 1-4, we read earlier, Paul writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have the praise of the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The United States government. We can point out many ways in which that government has failed in righteousness. Probably more today than ever. But... For one thing, it has never acknowledged Christ as king, which sets it in opposition to him, as Psalm 2 would say. But the Lord has used it, nevertheless. It's quite easy to see so many ways in which the Lord has used that government to bless his people in many generations, with peace, with security, with freedom to worship him openly. The Lord blesses his people even by means of ungodly leaders as he sees fit. We also see in this passage more typology revealed, uh, more ways in which Joseph is a type, that is an image prefiguring of Christ. Firstly, in his wisdom in planning for the welfare of his people, Joseph displays Christ. Christ Jesus also wisely plans for his people's good. And he has... Uh, done everything necessary to prepare us for the blessings of heaven. Rely on him. Seek his protection. Seek his provision. You need not, indeed must not, try to do things in your own strength. Christ gives all good things to his people. It is for Joseph's sake that Pharaoh is kind to Joseph's family. And so secondly, we see that this prefigures Christ. Or likewise, it is for Christ's sake that God saves and rewards his people. He doesn't owe us a thing. But we need not fear losing the love of God that he's given us freely, for God loves everyone in Christ for Christ's sake. His love for Christ's people is an extension of his love for Christ. And Christ deserves that love. You and I do not deserve such love, but Jesus does. And so God will never remove that love from you if you're trusting in Christ. For he loves Christ and he loves him perfectly. So trust Christ, love him, and be grateful to him. For because of him, the love of God can never be removed from you. Also, even as Pharaoh commanded that Jacob's family need not bring their goods with them, because again, for Joseph's sake, he was going to provide all that they needed, even so, God teaches us not to cling 
to the things of this world. They're useful tools, and we have, we have certain needs as long as we're to live in this world, but we are rather to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, built on the foundation of Christ, which will last into the world to come. A third thing we see here, a way in which Joseph prefigures Christ, is as Joseph graciously provided gifts according to his chosen measure, Notice he didn't owe, because he doesn't owe the gifts to his brothers at all, he doesn't owe the same gift to every brother either. But it's according to his chosen measure. So Christ also bestows gifts on his people, and it's according to his chosen measure. Cherish what he has given you, and use it for his glory. He has clothed all of his people. Notice that's the basic thing that Joseph does there. He clothes them all. And likewise, Christ has clothed all of his people in his righteousness so we can all enter God's presence. We need not be envious otherwise of the measure of grace and gifts that he's given to others. Which brings us then to our fourth way in which we see Joseph prefiguring Christ in this passage. Joseph desires his brothers, to have peace. And there are two sides of that peace coin, if you'll notice. He wants them not to be troubled, uh, fearing his wrath, nor to quarrel. Likewise, Christ assures us that we have nothing to fear if we trust in him. We have no wrath of God to fear to come upon us. But he desires us also, on the other side of that coin, to be at peace with one another. Trust Christ, Fear nothing else, and be at peace with his people. Let's pray. Lord, build up our trust, we pray, in you, that in love and gratitude we might serve you without fear and live at peace with your people. In Jesus' name, amen.